Uh, many of you have had uh, had the experience of going to a church camp or retreat or even at a church service and perhaps as a youth, perhaps when you were older, and having some significant encounter with God. Whether you would call it your conversion experience or just a kind of decision was made or recommitment, rededication, or whatnot. I, I personally had such an experience back in uh, summer before my ninth grade year at a retreat that my family went on to Colorado. I came back a different person from that, that week there than I had left. I God had, I was on one trajectory with my desires and passions and all of this, and then God completely redirected that, and I was never the same from then. And so I realized such times and occasions can be the occasion, the opportunity for God to really do a mighty work, for, to get a hold of us. But I think we all probably know as well that they can be times of kind of quick flaring up that then kind of fizzles out. We make decisions, we make commitments, we have these great experiences, but they don't really have any lasting effect on us. Perhaps you've seen that in yourself, perhaps you've seen that in others. And so what do we make of this? Does it matter what happens after those moments, if we have them? Or does all that matter that we have such a moment? And do we have to have such a moment? Well, let me just say this. There are ways to, to be greatly assured that God has captured us, that we are his, that he is ours, that, that we are secure in him. But merely pointing to some experience or decision or commitment we made at a retreat or conference or camp or church is not sufficient in that. God may have actually done, and he does, work through those things. He may have done a mighty work, may have captured your heart, but the way that we know that it was actually God is, that, is by what happens afterwards. Is there fruit that comes from it? The way that we gain assurance of that God has done a work in our heart, that God has captured our hearts, is in fruit. That is evidence of God's renewing, regenerating, empowering work in our life over time. That we are actually changed, not immediately, not completely, but over time we see that God is alive in us and with us. And I bring up that example just to say that this message is often confused in our context, in our churches, at our camps. It's not clearly taught. And I bring all of this up because this is what James talks about today. James is written, as we've talked about, to some Christians, some, some Jewish Christians who would align themselves with Christ, who would say that they are believers, Christians. But James recognizes that some of them may be deceived. They may be deceived about their position before God. They may have false assurance. And in a couple passages we'll cover today, James does two things. First, he, he walks with them to help them s consider whether their faith is genuine, whether they might be deceived. But then it doesn't, doesn't just leave them there. That wouldn't be too kind. Then he walks with them to help them give them assurance. Here are some ways you can know that, that you are God's, that you belong to him. 
And for them, as for us, as we go through this, just I would have you consider that this is an act of love. It's an act of love because being deceived about who God is, about who we are before him, about how salvation works, is of massive importance, right? This is no small matter of deception. This is of utmost importance. So I would ask you, just as we go through this, just be praying in your own heart. God, give me wisdom and humility to assess my own life in light of your word. Help me to have assurance. Help me to have greater comfort that I am really yours and that you are really mine. So let's work through these couple passages here in James. First, how might we be deceived about our salvation? We'll start at James 1, 22. He writes, But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently every week. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror, for he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. Now, I want to say right up front, salvation is a work of God which we embrace by faith. It is something God does for us through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. We can add nothing to that. We look to him and grasp him by faith. But if this faith is real and genuine and alive, it will be a powerful, life-changing, life-disrupting thing. You will not be the same. God's grace changes us. God's presence in us changes us. And so the warning here, be careful, James says, not to put your confidence merely in hearing God's word, going to church, reading your Bibles, even in believing it or claiming to believe it, at least, even in making some sort of profession or decision if you are entirely unchanged by it. Except for maybe your, your habits. Well, I go to church a lot. I read my Bible more. Those are good things. Keep doing those. And part of the context here is James is writing mainly to Jewish Christians, and part of the context is that they would go every week and hear God's word. They were the religious ones. They had a lot of religious knowledge. But if that's all that they had to show for themselves, James says they are akin to somebody that goes and looks in the mirror and, and they, they see their image, right? You go look in the mirror, you actually see what, it, it's your image, you're seeing yourself, but then you walk away and immediately forget what you saw. So the idea here in this analogy is that the mirror had the potential to help you out. Right? To show you that there was something in your hair or you know, some dirt on your face and, and you should do something about it. The mirror actually showed you what you needed to see, but then you immediately walked away and you forgot. And so it actually didn't help you at all because you, you forgot and you left unchanged. Similarly, but with much greater significance, what good is God's word if we spend lots of time in it, hear it every Sunday, but walk away and immediately forget what we heard? Or perhaps what good is it if we have, like, if we feel like we are really connecting with God inwardly? We have these great spiritual experience and, and moments that seem like they are God, 
But then we walk away and there's no change in us, no godliness. James will go on to say here in the next verses that such religion, quote-unquote, is worthless. That's not true religion. That's not your, your position before God is not affected by that. He then continues, so we're going to jump to chapter 2 here, and then we'll come back and finish that passage. So he continues to hammer this home and kind of clarify this in chapter 2, starting at verse 14. He says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So James uh, asks us to imagine someone who claims to have faith, but has no works to show for it. There's no obedience, no doing, no fruit of that faith. And he asks, is is this kind of faith sufficient? And he answers very clearly in verse 17, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Now, I, th- I think if we're honest, this is kind of a shocking, bald statement. Like, we want to clarify that. We want to give some nuance to that. If faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. This is, this is a discussion not about faith versus works. This is a discussion about a kind or quality of faith. Right? There is a faith that is genuine and alive that leads to and produces fruit and a faith that isn't. It's, it's not that some combination of faith and works works and so believe some things and kind of do some things and hopefully you get the right mixture and God grades on a curve and you'll be good. That's how many people live and how our hearts are tempted to live, right? No. Salvation is by God's work in Christ for us alone. It's all by grace. It's Christ alone, grace alone, faith alone for the glory of God alone. God does it. You don't get to add anything to it. You don't get to say, well, here's my part. I get credit for that. You don't get to work your way and and put God in your debt. But this kind of true grasping of salvation by faith, grasping of Christ by faith, will lead to a changed life. Will bear fruit. Or it's dead. James says. And so it's would be foolish of us to to hear this and not reflect on our own lives. If you claim Christ, if you are assured that you are in Christ, are in the mercy and favor of God, as you look back, do you see fruit? Do you see evidence of that? Inwardly, outwardly? um, Do you have an active trust in God? Do you want to 
glorify God by obeying God? Do you submit to him? When you sin, do you feel conviction about it rather than just being unchanged, unmoved by it, even loving it? Do you desire to gather with God's people and have others around you to encourage and strengthen you? That's part of the reason we do gather together and we do the things that we do as a church is so we can have greater assurance. Uh, I don't know about you, but I am somewhat aware of my own ability to deceive myself, myself, to have blind spots to justify and excuse and not really have a true perception of myself. And I hope you know about that, that about yourself as well. If that's the case, how dangerous is it to just completely do our Christianity on our own and assure ourselves that just assure ourselves without the assurance of others around us. And so part of what we do as a church, this is what we do through um, as we take communion together, as we baptize new believers, as we practice church membership and, and speak truth and love into one another's lives. All of this is towards the end of helping us gain greater assurance that God is actually alive in us. And so then James then specifically moves to talk about how we can have this assurance. So we're going to go back to chapter 1, pick up where we left off, verse 25. He says, but the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So notice the, the topic of deception again here. Uh, there is one who thinks he is religious, but he deceives his, part, his heart and has a worthless religion, James says. So how do we not do this? How do we gain assurance? And James gives us the answer. He says, by looking intently into God's word, hearing God's word, listening to it and doing it. Not being a forgetful hearer, like the man who looks in the mirror, but a diligent doer. Unless we think James is like kind of off into left field here. Jesus says essentially the same thing. Right? He says, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Rain fell, floods came, winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. One commentator says this, No one emphasized as strongly in Jesus the need for people touched by God's grace to respond with a radical world-renouncing obedience. Both the gracious initiative of God and the grateful response of human beings are necessary parts of the gospel. The word, God's word, through which we are born into new life and which becomes implanted in us is a word we must put into practice. 
So what does it look like to put the word into practice? Well, James gives us some examples. He gives us some tests in order to test the genuineness of our religion, uh, of our faith. Uh, This is certainly not a comprehensive list, but it is a representative list of what it might look like. So just real quickly, he talks about bridling your tongue. Do we bridle our tongue? Last week we talked about this. We talked about being slow to speak, quick to listen, and slow to anger, right? And that we have all the motivation and resources necessary to do this because God is slow to anger with us. And the words that we use can, can significantly, I mean, they're, they're a sign of what's going on in our hearts, right? They're evidence, they're fruit. Uh, he then talks about, do we have a heart for and seek to comfort the weak and oppressed? He talks about the widows and orphans and giving help to them. Uh, these were well-known categories of the weakest and most oppressed members in that society. Uh, certainly the same is true today, and we could add on to that list. S- single moms, um, those unable to, to work and provide for themselves, those without family to, to provide relationships and, and support. Whoever the weakest and most vulnerable and oppressed members of society are, do we care for them? And, and sometimes we're not able, able to provide for physical needs or financial needs, but we can assist and provide love and, and a, be a friend. Do we care? Does our heart move for those things? And then thirdly, he talks about being unstained, keeping ourselves unstained from the world. So morally, ethically, do we live according to God's standards rather than the world's? What is our plumb line for what is right and good and beautiful and true? Uh, is, it, is it whatever our world says? Is it, is it whatever a poli- particular political or ideological party or group says, or is it God and his word? How do we define justice and and love? Now, even in just going through a short list of biblical commands and and talking about obedience, um, as good Protestants, maybe we get a little uncomfortable. Like, we're all about grace here. What, What is this talk about obedience? Talk about the commands and law of God. And, and we want to quickly clarify that salvation is by grace. And that's true and that's beautiful and necessary. Our self-righteous, legalistic, proud hearts are always at the ready. We want to find a way to earn something before God, to put him in our debt, to get him off our back so that we can get on our lives without him. Grace is necessarily disruptive. When you read passages like this, and they're not just in James, you realize that the biblical authors, including Jesus, don't seem to believe that grace lessens the importance of obedience. It changes the nature of it, the role it plays, but it doesn't lessen its importance. Rather, grace is meant to in God's providence, to produce, to lead to obedience and worship. Obedience is meant to be a fruit of something that flows from God's gracious work in our lives. 
It is actually all grace. Even our obedience and our response to God is a sign of his spirit motivating us inside. Another way to say this is that Jesus is meant to be both your Lord and your Savior. You don't get one without the other. You don't get a say, I'll have this part of you, Jesus. I'll take your, your salvation for me, but I don't really want to listen to you. I don't really want to submit to you as Lord. You don't get a partial Jesus. And so it's of massive importance that we understand the relationship between faith and works. And that's how James finishes the second section here in chapter 2, really giving clarification for the relationship between faith and works. So last section we'll cover today, chapter 2, starting at verse 18. But someone will say, you have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith apart, and then James responds, show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, which is the foundational uh, belief of Jews. God is one. There is one God. You believe that God is one. You do well. Good for you. (laughs) Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not our father Abraham justified when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. Verse 24, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab, the prostitute, justified by works, when she received the messengers and sent them out another way. For as the body, apart from the spirit, is dead, so also faith, apart from works, is dead. Now, if you are familiar with your Bibles, you might be, um, you, you may be confused here. Isn't faith by justification, by faith alone? Doesn't the Bible teach that clearly? Paul certainly seems to, and he actually brings up the very same passage about Abraham to show that we are justified by faith in God, not our works. Abraham was not, even Abraham was not justified by his works. So what do we do with this seeming contradiction? Well, if you look just a little bit more closely, you will see that Paul and James, as they discuss both of these things, are using the word justified in different ways. They mean different things by justified. So Paul, in Romans 3 and 4, means justified in being made righteous before God. Something that God does to declare us right with him, in a right standing. God declares that we are no longer his enemies because of our sinful rebellion, but in Christ we are beloved children. We are his We have been reconciled to him. This is the doctrine, the wonderful doctrine of justification. James, on the other hand, means justified as in proved to be right or shown to be right, vindicated, as in I was vindicated that the rain would hold off this morning. Like, 
That didn't make me right, but it, it showed, it proved, it vindicated that I was right. And you see this in verse 22 where Paul, James says faith was completed by his works. Faith was completed. So his, the works or obedience complete or vindicate or reveal the genuineness of faith. And this is just as relevant today as in James's day. As I've kind of hinted at, obedience is kind of like this dirty word in our culture, even in our church culture, right? We want to like quickly clarify, yes, 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 but it, it's, it's not how you're saved. We have ideas of grace and salvation that have little room for obedience. It's just kind of like this optional add-on for those crazy serious people. Uh, part of the problem, as, as I said at the beginning, is, that we, is, is in how we call people to faith. We not only say that you must repent and believe you, and, and follow Christ, but then we, we base all assurance on that one-time decision. We say, if you made this decision or had this experience or felt this, then you can know that you are saved. We make assurance of salvation rest completely on a human decision. Now, decisions are good. We must repent and believe. We must turn. There's nothing inherently wrong in having altar calls, in raising hands, in going forward, in, in all of that. But Scripture does us, doesn't point us to those things to give us assurance of faith, but it points us to the fruit that comes after it. True faith bears fruit. Precisely because salvation is not just something you do, but something God does in you. It is a mighty work of God that cannot leave you unchanged. And then the other problem, and the reason we are often confused about this, is that we tend to think that all that matters, all that God is up to, is getting us into heaven when we die. Kind of fire insurance. That God has very little relevance or authority over our lives here and now. Or again, is just this kind of optional add-on for those who want to take it seriously. But God's purposes and work is much vaster and much deeper than that. God is about reconciling dead and rebellious sinners to himself and leading them into new life leading them into joy and satisfaction in him, beginning now and lasting into eternity. And so a piece of that is our joyful submission to God and his word. That's part of the newness of life that comes with salvation. And, and that's good because sin is not good. Sin, even when we desire it and, and give into it and enjoy it, briefly kills us rebellion against god steals life it's never worth it god's commands and will and our obedience to them are actually good good for us leading to life and joy and human thriving So let me tie this all together and, and close with an analogy that I picked up from a professor of mine a while back. Sometimes we can think that our part in salvation is something like paddling a canoe. We 
must do all the work or we'll get nowhere. It's all on us, pushing along. We say perhaps God helps those who help themselves, but really it's all on us. Maybe God will come along and help us a little bit, but it's really all dependent on us. Other times we can think our part in salvation is more like drifting down a river in an inner tube. We can just sit back, passive, relaxed, not doing anything. We have no responsibility. It's all by grace anyway, so, so why work? Why put forth any effort? In reality, the correct view is neither of these. According to James and the rest of the Bible, the correct view is our part in salvation is something like a water skier. And God is both the boat and the motor. All the power, all the strength, all the motivation comes from him. Without that boat and motor, we are dead in the water. We can't get up. We can't go along. We can do nothing. Apart from him, we can do nothing. John, Jesus says very clearly in John 15. However, as God empowers us as the boat pulls us. We have a responsibility. We must put forth every effort. It's hard hanging onto that rope. We must put forth every effort, as Peter clearly writes, in response to the work that God is doing, or we will fall. And actually, our situation is even better than that because God not only provides the strength and the power, he also provides the will and the desire. I mean, Paul writes in Philippians 2, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And so God is not only strengthening us, but also changing our desires for what is good. And so, call for us is to trust in Christ as sufficient Savior, as rightful Lord, and and keep on trusting him. Our confidence is always in him and his work for us as completely sufficient. We can't add on to it, earn it. Our hope is in that. And then as we do that, and we learn that he is good and his ways are good, we learn to trust him and what he says, we submit to him with our whole lives. We listen to him and we follow him and we continually come back to grace that we need every day as we fail and fall short. But we don't give up. And we keep doing this not as a form of self-salvation, but because he has saved us, he is with us, and his way is good for us and it brings glory to him which we increasingly desire as he changes us let's pray